Open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and while you're turning there, just to sort of introduce our topic today, I would remind you of the dangerous world that we live in, people blowing themselves up in train stations and public places, trying to blow up not only themselves, but as many people as they can along the way, religious terrorists who are targeting not only our nation, but nations across the Western world. And there's a tension and there's an animosity that takes form in a religious cause. These men, sometimes women, believe that in blowing themselves up, they will earn their way into heaven. The sad reality is that they won't. They will not enter into heaven by their terrorist activities. They only hasten the day of their final judgment. And by their activity, they also believe that they will prevent as many people as possible from entering into heaven. They think that somehow they're going to hinder the progress of whether it's Western civilization or Christianity itself. They take aim not only for their own self-righteous goals, but also for the prevention of what they consider to be something that is undermining their own religion. They're propagating a system of falsehood and doing everything they can to hinder the progress of the truth. All of that is just an outward, visible form of what takes place in a much more extensive way around us all the time. Because Satan, while he sometimes works through these extreme and fanatical measures, is much more active in what we might consider less extreme but equally as dangerous ways where millions of people who are engaged at all times around us in religious activity that is equally as blind, equally as driven by self-righteous pride, by, by their own arrogance, they're blindly marching themselves to destruction, and in their self-righteousness, they begin to resent those who represent the true light of the gospel, because it exposes their pride, and it exposes their unbelief, and so they oppose it. They fight against it. They may do it with bombs and explosives, or they may do it with other tactics, other devices, all intent on holding back the truth. Jesus confronted this, you may remember, in his ministry in Luke chapter 11. Luke records for us one of these events, or one of these times. In verse 42 of that chapter, Jesus said to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You're you're fastidious in your religion and there's certainly no problem with that, but your problem is, is that in all of your fastidiousness, you are neglecting the weightier matters of love and justice. Woe to you, Pharisees, he says, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, 
For you're like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him and said, Teacher, in saying these things, you're insulting us too. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. And so you're witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you take away the key of knowledge. You do not enter yourselves and you hinder those who are entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait so that they could catch him in something that he might say. These men were every bit as dangerous as any religious terrorist who's ever lived. That's the point that Jesus is making. He's linking them and drawing a connection between them and every murderous mob throughout Israel's history. In fact, going all the way back to the very foundation of the world, to Cain and Abel, and the eternal struggle that manifested itself there. He's saying it is manifesting itself. And it might manifest itself sometimes in the extreme form of of uh, bombs and uh, bullets and all that might take place around us, or it may mask itself in the courteous and respectful religion of the Pharisees who cloak themselves in an outward morality but are just as dangerous, just as destructive as any murderous, terroristic, fanatical group. Here they are in Luke chapter 11 having been confronted by Christ Himself, and what do they do? They turn around, and instead of employing bullets and bombs, they try to catch Jesus in some supposed misstatement, some inconsistency, some technical, semantical, rhetorical error, because their intent is the same as the intent of any murderous thug. To destroy those who by the clarity of their message would expose the self-righteousness, the pride, and the man-made efforts of their religion. These people are not the hostile, atheistic, irreligious on the outside. These are not the, the ones who are necessarily opening, openly denying any existence of God. These are the hostile attacks of religious hypocrisy and self-righteousness on the inside. Often using religion as a mask for their own self-centered purposes. Even using it as an excuse for their ungodly opposition to the truth. Their ungodly opposition and attacks against the gospel. 
using religion as the very means by which they attack others. Now all of that gives you some framework as we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 because it is the theological context from which we can understand what Paul has to say to us in this chapter. Because what Jesus traces all the way back to the foundations of the world, all the way back to Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, all the way through the history of Israel, even up to his own time and the attacks that were coming against him, Paul picks up and gives testimony to in his own experience and even the experience of the church at Thessalonica. You remember he's writing this letter because attacks were still being launched against him even after he had left the city, even after he had been run out. He's writing this in order to undergird and bolster a church that he fears may be possibly subject to these kinds of efforts by these kinds of people. And as he does that, he's giving them an account. He's reminding them of what they witnessed and what they saw and what they knew in their hearts and their consciences about him and about his co-workers. He's giving them a, a recount of his ministry in Thessalonica, reminding them of the way he lived his life, the way that the Word of God impacted them. He's been doing that really all the way through chapter 1, chapter 2, as we've been seeing, and we've come today to verse 13, and Paul begins to give thanks now of how they responded to all this. He's mostly talked about himself to this point, but now he wants to give thanks for how they responded to the preaching of the truth when they heard it. But he can't get very far into remembering how they responded without giving equal thought to those who responded the opposite way. The Thessalonians, they were certainly the ones who heard and accepted the truth. But there were those who heard and opposed the truth. And Paul speaks about both groups in this little section. He says in verse 13, "We, We also thank God constantly for this, That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus who are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, so as to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. You can see Paul starts this little section with the intent of giving a commendation, a thanksgiving for these Thessalonians, but he ends up, by the time you get to verse 16, with this condemnation of those who ultimately withstood and undermined the Word of God. It's a contrast between those who heard and those who hindered, or between those who accepted and those who obstructed. Between those who had the, work of, uh, the Word of God working within them and those who were opposed to the Word of God working in anyone else. These were those 
ones that Paul speaks about here in verses 15 and 16, they didn't necessarily think or weren't consciously aware at all times of everything they were doing, but they were displeasing to God, opposed to Him, and opposed to all mankind. In fact, in most cases, these were people who were actually thinking that they were serving God. They were doing what they were doing in the name of God. They would have told all their friends they're trying to somehow help God or do God's bidding. But no matter what their stated motive, Paul says they were displeasing to him and they were heaping up judgment to themselves. There's really an even more profound contrast when you think about it because as we've said a number of times, Paul was in Thessalonica three, maybe four months total. And so really what the contrast is is between a group of people who with such limited exposure to the preaching of the truth of God saturated themselves with it and allowed it to work in their hearts and minds versus the Jews who had literally their whole lives sat under the teaching of God's truth who not only missed it completely but actually became instruments and weapons of the enemy to hinder and obstruct it. The first group, the Thessalonian believers, Paul says they accepted the word and it was a work among them. The second group, Paul says, these Jews who resisted him and ran him out of town, they were opposed to the word and its work in anyone where it might have progress. And we can look at these two groups and just think about them a little more carefully. First of all, just looking at verses 13 and 14, we could take note of the fruit of those who, who accept the Word of God, the fruit of those who are accepting, we might say, of the Word. And you'll notice Paul giving thanks for them. He's already given thanks for them back in chapter 1. He thanked God for their labor and their work and their steadfastness. He'll thank, he'll thank God again over in 2 Thessalonians whenever he remembers how fitting that thanksgiving is in light of their, their faith and their increasing love, how it's abounding all the time. So he's giving thanks because he sees something happening in them. He sees the Word of God working out in them in all of these ways. And here particularly, he's giving thanks again for the way that they responded to the truth. They responded to it for what it really is, not just for some other uh, floating opinion, not just for some other chatterbox in their ear, but it is what it really is, the Word of God. And he's not talking about their devotional reading. He's not even talking about anything they read at all. He says, what you heard. He's specifically talking about the proclaimed or preached Word of God. They gave attentive ear to himself and to Silas and to Timothy as they preached. And as they preached, he says, what you heard, you understood to be not just the opinions of me and Silas, not just the opinions of men, but you understood it for what it really is. The self-authenticating word of God. You accepted it. You received it. With joy and with satisfaction in your hearts. Because you understood what it really is. You understood its unique quality. It wasn't human. It was divine. 
when they heard this word preached, when they sat under its preaching, they recognized this qualitative difference. In fact, Paul, when he uses this in the original language, he doesn't even give the article which is a way for a Greek writer to emphasize not the specificity of a particular uh, message or word, but the quality of it. There was a quality about this word. It was qualitatively different from anything else that you had heard. They recognized it when they listened that there was a difference. It had a power, as Hebrews says, it's sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces down to the very division of soul and spirit. It has an excellence and a beauty so that you could say with the psalmist that it is sweet to your taste, sweeter than honey in your mouth. It has a light that cuts through the darkness so that As the psalmist again says, it becomes a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. They recognized its truthfulness, that it cannot be broken, as Jesus says in John 10. The scripture speaks with a kind of unified voice, which reflects the character of God who cannot lie. They heard the word of God, and as they examined it, they recognized that it had all of these kinds of unique qualities. There was unlike anything else that they heard in all of their schools of philosophy, in all of their educational upbringing, in all of their traditional stories that were passed down through their culture or through their families. This was unique. And they received it. They received it because God was at work in them through it. Which must be the case if you're able to receive the Word. You know the Scripture says, that you cannot receive the word in the way the Thessalonians received it unless the Spirit of God is at work in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. The natural man, that is the man without the Spirit, the man who hasn't been given the Holy Spirit, that man doesn't receive God's word. In fact, it says they're foolishness to him. So he sits and he listens to all of this preaching. He could sit under Paul, he could sit under Silas, he could sit under anyone else, and he doesn't accept it. In fact, he resists it, he even mocks it as folly, and he suppresses it. He suppresses the conviction that comes into his heart. He suppresses the authority that demands the change. He suppresses the warnings that tell him about the coming judgment. He suppresses all that stuff. He doesn't receive it. He doesn't acknowledge it as divine because he doesn't have the Spirit of God. But as Paul describes here, these believers did. They received it. As what it really is, the Word of God. Over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul actually talked about those who are perishing. And they're perishing, he says, because they refused to love the truth so as to be saved. They heard the truth. They sat under the preaching of the truth. But they refused the love of it. Out of their love for their own minds, their own hearts, their own self-righteous, self-exalting view, they resisted the truth and so they could not be saved. A spiritual man, however, isn't like that. He's like the Thessalonians. The spiritual man hears the word, 
He recognizes that it has qualitative difference from any other message that he heard. And he accepts it. And as Jesus says in the Gospels, he builds his life upon it like a house on a rock that's able to withstand all the battering winds of trial and tribulation and torment or whatever it is in this life. And ultimately of judgment. And this was the Thessalonians. And Paul remembers it with gratitude. It wasn't just some momentary uh, emotion. They didn't just sort of arrive on a Sunday morning and get whipped up into some sort of frenzy and have some sort of emotional experience and then walk away. He actually talks about the ongoing work of the Word of God. This is the, this is the power of genuine preaching. That when you walk away from whatever it is and the, and the feelings and the emotions die down, that the Word of God and the truth of God carries with you. It goes with you and continues to ring in your ears and do its work within you. And that's what he's talking about. He says, this is the Word which is at work in you who believe. All of that He's using in the present tense. It wasn't just something that happened when I was with you, but it continues its work. Even after Paul and Timothy and Silas left, others would have come in and preached and taught the Word and it would have continued to have its operative and productive effect in their lives. And Paul could see it and he knew about it. As we said, he already gave thanks back in chapter 1 verse 3 about how their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope was there. It was evident in their life. And over in 2 Thessalonians, how their love was abounding all the more and their faith was growing all the more. He could see the evidences of the work of God in their life. They were being sanctified by it as Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, the Word would do. They're being matured by it as Paul says the Word will do in Ephesians chapter 4 when it's faithfully taught by elders and pastors and teachers. They're giving, being given discernment. They're distinguishing between good and evil as Hebrews says will happen whenever you mature in the Word of God. They're being edified and encouraged according to what Paul, excuse me, Peter says in 1 Peter 2 will happen when you feed on the Word of God. They're given wisdom. They're given counsel, as the psalmist says. They're even given success. Uh, Joshua 2 says, when you meditate on this Word day and night, you're given success. Paul is looking into their life, and what he's seeing is that they're not banking on some past capital in their spiritual life. They're not looking back to a moment and a day when God might have worked or done something amazing, but he sees that they're still engaged on a regular basis in the Word of God, and their minds and their hearts are being transformed so that he can say in the present tense, it is at work among you who believe. In fact, Paul uses a a present tense here emphasizing that. The standard way would have been uh, maybe an aorist, which would have been sort of a just an uh, uh, all-encompassing aspect. But Paul's language and his grammar here is punctuating the ongoing effect of this word. They were listening. They were accepting. They were believing the word of God. And because of that, it was changing them continually. 
We might say they were constantly confronting the unbelief that was latent in their hearts. They were constantly confronting the unbelief that they may not talk to others about. They may not even share with those closest to them because of the shame and the high, uh, the, the, the shame and their own pride. But, but they would sit under the Word of God. They would let it have its work in them, confronting all of the ways they still were resisting the Lordship of Christ. And in doing that, they trusted in the Lord with all their heart and didn't lean on their own understanding. In all their ways, they acknowledged Him. And let him direct his, their paths. Paul points out in verse 14 a particular way that they were doing this. He says that they became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus who were in Judea. For you suffered, he says, the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So this is one of the key ways that the word of God was at work among them. And that was just a willingness to suffer rejection. A willingness to become He says imitators, maybe not conscious imitation, but simply saying they were following in the same pattern that was followed in by believers who had gone before them. And particularly, he has in mind believers who were in Judea. Because up to that point, there really had not been a lot of churches anywhere else in the world. Judea was the founding of the church in 33 AD. The church began, it began with the same experience of harassment that it was that was uh, given to it throughout all of its early years. You remember the Jewish authorities brought in the the apostles on the first couple of days of their preaching and brought them and imprisoned them overnight and beat them and then charged them not to continue preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus Christ, which, which they said they couldn't do. And they continued to do that for two or three years facing the opposition of the religious leaders until the real persecution broke out two or three years later in the stoning of Stephen around 35 A.D. And it was headed up, you may remember, by none other than Paul himself. Acts chapter 8 says that Paul was breathing out violence against the church as an unconverted, unredeemed Jewish hypocrite. And he saw firsthand what the love of the truth produced in people. Acts 8 says he was entering into house after house and he was dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. He had to be baffled as he hurled one after another insults, threats against them. And he saw them stand up against all of that and boldly to his face still proclaim the truth. It wasn't long after that in Acts chapter 9 that the Lord would capture Paul himself on the road to Damascus, blinding his eyes, sending him on his way, saying that he would make Paul an ambassador to the Gentiles. And even without Paul, the church continued to suffer seven or eight years later. James, of course, the apostle, was killed by Herod Agrippa, who eventually imprisoned Peter before he died in 44 A.D. All the while, the churches continued to grow throughout Judea, facing hardship, facing persecution, facing expulsion, facing rejection. 
And in spite of all that, flourishing more and more in the love of the truth. Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church probably around 50, 51 AD. All this stuff is fresh in his mind. I mean, this is what had happened over the last 20 years. And he could point to it as as vivid examples. And this is what he's seeing now in the Thessalonians. He, He understood that they had committed themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He understood that when they did that, that their hearts and their, their commitment to the Lordship would get tested. And he saw that happening and he saw them enduring the test like so many of their fellow believers had done before them. And he saw that fruit being borne out in their life. And so he says, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful that when you received, when you accepted the word of God, it wasn't just lip service. It wasn't just some sort of Sunday morning facade. You were willing to stick your neck out and to pay the price and to face rejection or whatever it was to stand for the truth. Now, all of this, this mention of this persecution and this suffering and even the Jews, all of that sort of seems to flood in Paul's mind other memories. Because as soon as he mentions these persecutions, he takes a different direction, you might say. And he begins to speak then about the fate of those who didn't accept the word, in fact, those who opposed the word of God, whether overtly or covertly, those who sought to undermine its work and its progress in the lives of others. And Paul's point is their efforts, as zealous as they might have been and as productive as they might seem in the moment, their efforts are not overlooked by the Lord. They're not ignored. In fact, all they're really doing is storing up certain judgment against themselves. And that's where he takes us in verse 15 and 16, the fate of those who opposed the word. Because much like Jesus, Paul takes this opposition that he sees in the Thessalonians and he traces a pattern of those who oppose the word of God from the harassment and persecution in their lives back through the persecution of the Judean churches, the, the opposition and expulsion that even he himself and his fellow missionaries faced, the murder and crucifixion of Jesus Christ all the way back into the Old Testament and the opposition and the murder of the prophets and he could pick up with Jesus and go all the way back to the foundation of the world. These Men and women who react so violently against the truth of God may imagine that somehow they have arrived at their animosity or somehow they may have imagined that they arrived at their conclusions against the Word of God independent of everything else, disengaged and detached from every other movement, operating as some sort of some sort of uh, lone researcher into the dangers of what they believe are Bible-believing Christians. But Paul says, no, there's a link. There's a link. They're linking arms with a movement, a pattern that has roots that go all the way back through the people of God. 
through the scriptures back to Cain and Abel itself. And it doesn't matter what the race is. It doesn't matter what the nationality is. In fact, it doesn't even matter what the religion is. For Jews, it would have been Judaism. So many of those people were raised in religious environment. They were raised studying the Bible. They were raised repeating the Bible, memorizing the Bible. So many of them presented themselves as teachers of the Bible. Or prior to that, if you go before the history of Israel all the way back to Cain and Abel, it doesn't matter what the religion is. If you're looking at the Thessalonians, these were not necessarily Jewish people. Paul says, you're suffering at the hands of your own countrymen like I did for my own. It doesn't matter what the facade is. The facade is just there to hide the self-righteous pride underneath. But all of it is a manifestation of the same sort of hostility towards the truth. As Jesus says, He came into the world to shine the light. Those who love the darkness do not come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. So you shine too much light and what they want to do is they want to, they want to blanket that. They want to snuff that out. They want to hide that light in any way that they can. Paul says they do this, this hostility towards the truth, this resistance to the truth, no matter what their race or background or whatever. It may not be immediate, but eventual. If you shine enough light, if you bring enough exposure, this antagonism and the attempts to obstruct the truth will come out. It will impede. You can silence your voice and you can prolong that or you can stand for the truth and you will face it. People are really struck. In fact, when Paul's speaking here, they're struck by the ferocity with which he writes. In fact, people have noted this very passage in Thessalonians as what they say sometimes is the most anti-Semitic passage in the New Testament. Many people have Suggested it wasn't even something Paul could have written. This was so strong against the Jews. So adamant in its denunciation that it had to come from some other source. But of course, you know, we don't have a single manuscript of Thessalonians that doesn't have this in it. There's no reason at all from an internal standpoint, external standpoint, there's no reason at all to, to think that this wouldn't be from the Apostle Paul. Because he himself is speaking from personal experience. It only makes sense. I mean, Paul himself was a Jew. He's not an anti-Semite for sure, but he's speaking as a man who was chased out of Damascus by Jews as a young Christian when he was trying to preach the gospel. He was rejected in his message at Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13 and run out of town. Acts 14, it says the Jews, whenever the, he began to preach there, they've started to disseminate among the people. And, and uh, Luke says was, they were poisoning the minds of the people at Iconium against Paul. And then they chased him to Lystra and persuaded all the people to drag Paul outside the city and stone him. And of course, here in Thessalonica, they drove him out. That's what, he, that's what he's referring to there in, verse, in uh, verse 15. They drove us out just like they did the prophets. It's a word, really, that talks about a, 
creating, in one source it says, creating a constant annoyance or the use of tactics to force the departure of someone. They may not have necessarily grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and drug him out of the city, but they were doing everything they could to create this movement against the Apostle Paul. And you remember much of what we've been looking at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is Paul addressing so many of those things. They were calling him a liar. They were calling him deceitful and and saying that he was after people's money. And they were saying that he had duplicitous motives and all these things. These are the ones who were intent on hindering by any way that they could. Just like the ones who were trying to catch Jesus and something he might say. Just like the ones who were killing the prophets. They're all linked together. Even while he's writing this letter, he was facing Jewish opponents in Corinth. Who were once again trying to undermine his position and his message. And so Paul, it makes sense that he would say these kinds of things. But it doesn't mean he's anti-Semitic. He's a Jew himself. These are his own countrymen. And nothing he said was any more forceful than what Jesus said, who looked at his own people and told them that the day of judgment will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for them. Why? Because they had the truth and they didn't respond to it. They had the words, they had the signs, they had the miracles. And Jesus said, if, if Sodom and Gomorrah had heard what you heard and seen what you've seen, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus called his own people a brood of vipers. He says they were the children of their father, the devil. And what was manifesting in their hearts in terms of their animosity and their hatred against the truth was nothing more than the evidence of who their true father was. Murderous from the beginning. And here they are showing the same traits in their heart. Nothing Paul said was any more forceful than that. So as Paul gives these words, even like the words of Jesus, he's picking up that same trend. And he's pointing out to these Thessalonians that what they are engaged in isn't some, isn't some contemporary squabble between two intractable parties. This is the age-old conflict. Between God Himself and the enemy, Satan. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians, he'll talk about this, the activity of Satan. He talks about those who are rejecting the truth. And he says, this is the work of Satan who is working his, quote, wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. This was the same unbelief that the prophets spoke about over and over again. Jeremiah 5, he writes to his own people. He says, this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives us rain in a season and autumn rain and the spring rain and keeps us keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away. Your sins have kept all of this good from you. Or the prophet Isaiah, who says, 
Uh, God says to them, my hand isn't so short that I cannot save. My ear isn't so deaf that it cannot hear. But your sins have separated you from me. God has denounced this kind of unbelief over and over again for centuries. Remember, he had established Israel as a priestly nation. They were supposed to be the people who were to take the word of God and the truth of God to all the other nations and be a blessing to all the nations on the face of the earth. And instead of all that, they became exclusive and bigoted and self-righteous and prideful. Their reverence for the word of God was superficial. And they really lived their life by worldliness. Paul knows that they're religious. He says in Romans chapter 10, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. They're religious. They're zealous. They're committed. He says, but it's not according to knowledge. Romans 10.3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. They had a zeal. They just didn't understand the gospel. And they continued on in their pride. And it manifested itself in this way. It manifested itself in opposition. As the light grew stronger, they grew in opposition. At times it was subtly contained under the cloak of courteous religion. At times it boiled over into outright attack against the messengers of God. And Paul says here, they are therefore displeasing to God. And opposed to all mankind. Why is that? Because in verse 16. Because they hindered us from speaking. They hindered us from speaking. They tried to silence our voice to the Gentiles. So that they might be saved. They're like the Pharisees. Who Jesus said. They took away the key of knowledge. They weren't entering themselves. And they tried to hinder those who were, who were entering. They were trying to cloud the truth by all of their focus on these external traditions and all of their deeds and all of their achievements. They misinterpreted and misrepresented the Word of God. They denied or suppressed the need for repentance. They denied or suppressed the need for grace. They obscured the true pathway to God. They never exalted the necessity of humility or seeking mercy. They erected a a system of external morality that was all about their own personal achievement. And by suppressing the truth, they were obscuring it for others. Regardless of how good their life might have seemed, no matter how righteous their moral system might have appeared to others, the ultimate result was that they were shutting off other people from the kingdom of heaven. They were not entering themselves, and they were hindering other people from entering. They might have had a system of good works that gave to the needy and mobilized thousands to feed the hungry, but they were leaving souls damned to hell. They might have had a system that educated and trained all of its followers in all sorts of principles of goodness and stimulated its, the minds of people, maybe even stirred them, but they were leaving souls damned to hell. Because of how they clouded, clouded and cluttered the lives of so many people with external religion, giving them just enough to, to, uh, 
sort of immunize them or inoculate them against the truth so that they were never really fully sick of their sin to the point of brokenness and repentance. This is every bit as dangerous as anybody who straps a bomb to their chest, walks into a group of people and blows themselves up. Because whether they are considering the outcome of their actions or not, they are dabbling with things that have eternal consequences. Dealing with things that ultimately destroy the soul. And those consequences are immense. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 16 that they are therefore always filling up the measure of their sins, but the wrath has come upon them at last. He uses this metaphor of a cup and the idea of it being filled up to the full in the, in the sense of you know, not leaving anything out. Everything is going to be, every inch of that cup is going to be filled up. This is kind of language of the Old Testament as God often talks about you know, the sin of this certain people, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete, he says in Genesis 15. You get this idea that God is communicating to His people, look, I see what's going on here. I recognize the evil of what's taking place. I understand the pride and the self-righteousness. I understand the efforts to hinder the gospel. Don't imagine that because you're having to battle against this stuff and, and you seem at times to be losing ground, don't imagine that somehow I don't see this. The issue is that God has a certain measure And he's allowing these people to fill up the full measure of their sins. And that measure has not been met. And when it is, he's going to bring his judgment. They may mock. They may attack. They may undermine. They might look at the faith and the genuineness of those around them. And they might see all kinds of things that stir their anger and their hatred and the the judgment of God might be the furthest thing from their minds. They may not be seeing any ill effects at the very moment in their life, but they're short-sighted because their judgment is building and building and building. It's filling up slowly, slowly. And it will reach a time when God has reached the limit. And it will be a terrifying thing. Just because He's not poured out His judgment doesn't mean He doesn't see. Your mockery, your resistance, your hindrance of God's work in the lives of other people He knows it and He will act. In fact, Paul says, for this group, wrath has come upon them. He's not saying that that, that it's something that's visible. He's actually using a rhetorical sort of transfer. Talking about the future judgment, but speaking about it in the past tense because it's such a certain and settled matter. God's already determined it. 
There's no way you're going to escape this. He will fill his cup of wrath and he will fill up that judgment as they fill up their cup of rebellion and sin and blindness. And when he pours it out, it will be full. Nothing held back. It's a dramatic and a sad contrast between those who hurt and those who hinder. Those who accept and those who obstruct. It's a sad thing for people to sit under the real Word of God and to call it something else. The Word of men, the opinions of men, to turn away from it because they want to hold on to their sin. Which one are you? Which one are you? Are you the one here today hindering? Are you the one mocking, undermining? Because you don't want your sin exposed any longer. You don't want to have to deal with what's in your heart. And so with your spouse or with your kids or with your parents, all you want to do is chip away at their faith. Are you that person filling up the cup? Are you the one hearing, believing, letting the Word of God have its work within you? Our prayer today is that would be you, that you would hear what you hear today and know that it is the Word of God. And you'd repent and you'd believe because this is the day of salvation. The opportunity to escape judgment. The opportunity to repent and be saved out of a love for the truth. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're grateful to hear this word. We're thankful to know that your word can have its continued work among us. We pray that it would, encouraging us, building us up, giving us discernment, maturity, wisdom. Fruits of righteousness. Lord, we pray for those who are here today who came to hear your word. Maybe not with hearts ready to believe. We pray, Father, that you would grant them a brokenness. That they would know that they're sitting under the truth. That they would know that your judgment awaits them. But they would also know that your mercy is there for all who call upon the name of the Lord. We pray for them, Lord. Would you save them? Would you show your mercy to them? Would you let your work be done in them by the word of truth? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.